And we're going to get into the Word tonight. And I do have one verse of Scripture that I would like to read to you. And it's a familiar one, and it's one that we read last week. And if you have your Bibles, you might as well turn to Matthew chapter 5. It's our theme Scripture for this short little two-part series. Jesus said, Ye are the salt of the earth. Everyone say, the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to cast but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. And again, of course, our title, our theme, our subject is that first phrase of Jesus in verse 13, the salt of the earth. And we're going to dive in tonight. I would like us to consider again for a few minutes our role in this world as salt. What specifically was Jesus talking about when he made this statement? We talked about it last week, but in that day in particular, salt served many beneficial functions and it held great value. It was payment for the wages of those that would work in Rome, etc. But it was for flavoring, for preservation, for offering sacrifices, for destroying fields, and even in proper proportion, it was for fertilizing the soil, among other things. However, Let's not try to assume that we know for sure which particular function that Jesus was talking about and what he had in mind. He left it ambiguous and open-ended, which no doubt was intentional by the Master. And followers of Jesus, we can conclude we are like salt. Although we're ordinary, although we're everywhere, we are certainly valuable in his sight, and we have a variety of roles to play as God's kingdom comes on earth. I feel that the Lord would have us to remember that his people in the earth, we are a force for good. We are salt. We bring the savor of heaven to earth. We seek to preserve righteousness and godliness in a godless age. We aim to destroy the works of the devil. We tear down every stronghold of sin. We are the salt of the earth. And the enemy's plans and his desires, they are thwarted, they are halted simply because there is a church alive in the earth today that is empowered by God's Spirit. Everyone say, we are salt. We are salt. We are the salt of the earth. We are salt in the city of Fredericton. And I I just want to echo what I said last week, that our city is abundantly blessed by virtue of the fact That there is a church preaching God's word, exalting his name, living in righteousness, all for the glory of God. Somebody say amen. Our church here in the city of Fredericton, we are a blessing to those around us. Fredericton is blessed to have an apostolic, spirit-filled, tongue-talking, Jesus-name-only, new-birth-preaching, miracle-believing church. And if you believe it again, just shout amen. You might as well clap your hands. Go ahead and just say amen to the word of God. That's what we are. We are an agent for supernatural power and preservation to push back darkness and allow God's blessing to flow. And just our very presence. I know sometimes to talk like this maybe feels a bit presumptuous, but it's not. God has positioned us for this purpose. Our very presence in this earth is a blessing to the people around us, and to the communities around us. Christians, I I said it last week, but Christians truly do make the best citizens that could exist, period. God's blessing is upon us. And everyone in our vicinity, they ought to experience the overflow of God's goodness and power that rests on us and overflows from us. We are salt. Now, there's a picture of this in 2 Kings chapter 2. You're familiar, perhaps, with Elijah and Elisha, both prophets, the older and the younger protege. And Elisha, the young man, has just watched as his mentor, Elijah, has been carried off to heaven in a chariot of fire. And now Elisha, he's made his way back to Jericho, and he's staying there. The Bible says, 2 Kings 2, verse 19, that the people of the city, they said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see. Now, Jericho, where he was, the name, it means place of fragrance. And they said it's well situated. Other translations 
the King James, for example, it says the situation is pleasant in Jericho. On the surface, everything looked like it was going very well. They said, Elijah, as you can see, things are going well. So on the surface, things looked great, but there's a but in that verse. The people said, but the water is bad, and the land is unproductive. We don't know exactly how or why that water was bad, but it was. And as a result, the land was unproductive, and it was barren. There was no life there. There was no vegetation, and some would even speculate that maybe it was causing fertility issues in that place. Appearances can be deceptive is, is really what, they're, what the Scripture is teaching us. It looked fine. It's a place of fragrance. As you can see, Elisha, the situation is pleasant, but there's something in the water that is causing barrenness and unfruitfulness. And I would just say tonight that I know on the surface, when you look at the landscape of our world, it's easy to point out the bad, but if you look at your average neighbor, and if you look at your average coworker or classmate, on the surface, things look okay. But if you could just see beneath the surface a little bit, you will, you will find that it's much the same as Jericho. There's barrenness there. There's, there's something bad going on under the surface. But thankfully, the prophet Elisha, he had a solution. And verse 20 says this. He looks back at those people. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. Everyone say, put salt in it. <laughs> so they did it. They brought it to him. And then Elisha, he went out to the spring and he threw the salt into the spring saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. In verse 22, and the water, it has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. So you can see very plainly from the story in 2 Kings 2 that the solution to the bad water, the solution to the barren land, it was salt. <laughs> Everyone say salt. I brought my shaker with me again tonight. And I promise I will not make a mess. Salt is the God element in this story. Every ailment and every problem that, that we could ever name that exists in this world, can I tell us that it can be solved by God's power in the earth. To every issue of life, to every dilemma that we may encounter, I give you tonight the solution, and His name is Jesus. He is that element within us by His Spirit that is the change agent in our world. So the stream, it needed salt. But you'll notice that in order for the solution to come in contact with the problem, the salt needed a container. Elisha said, put that salt in a new bowl. It's interesting that he said a new bowl because it tells me that it couldn't be just any ordinary vessel. Just any old vessel that you found in the cupboard. But Elisha said, give me something that's new. Give me, give me something that no other element or item has ever been placed within. It needs to be a new bowl. Now, we understand from the New Testament, Paul tells us that we have this treasure in earthen vessels and that our very lives, we, we are vessels, containers that carry the Spirit of God in our world today. And, and as God found us, we would not be fit to carry Jesus to a tainted and barren world. But thankfully, we have been made new by the power of God. I love this verse for baptism, but it's so powerful for any, any occasion. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. So we shout new. you got to remember today that as born-again believers, we are new bowls. We, we are redeemed vessels that are fit for the Master's use. We have been cleansed and cleaned so that God's Spirit could take up residence within. Amen? That's what we are. We're new bowls in the hands of the Master, poised to carry the salt to a broken world. But I notice also, and I want you to notice in verse 21, that Elisha, he takes this new bowl filled with salt. And the Bible says that he went to the spring. He didn't just speak a word over the water at a distance. But he got right in the middle of the issue so that he could throw that salt into the bad water to fix the barrenness. We understand that there's some things, some brokenness, some, some darkness that can't be fixed at long range. But for our world to be healed, somebody has to get out in the midst of the issue 
Stand on the shore of the spring, as it were, so that the salt can be spread into the brokenness and the barrenness. You'll notice also in verse 21, Elisha very emphatically, he let them know that it wasn't him that was doing the work, but it was God that was doing the work. This is what the Lord says, he declared. I have healed this water. And when the bowl did its job and carried the salt to the issue, God was able to perform the miracle and everything changed. And it wasn't just something that was quick and, and, and just lasted for a little while, but you'll notice in verse 22 that this miracle It had lasting effects. It was no flash in the pan. It it was not something that was here today and gone tomorrow. But the waters, they remained pure. The salt, it didn't just mask the issue just for it to resurface soon after. But the salt, it healed the water. Never to be the same again. So I will say again as we dive into this Bible study a little bit tonight, you are the salt of the earth And God has put his spirit in you so that you can be a change agent, an agent of healing and deliverance to a broken world around you. I've come to remind somebody tonight that you have the power within you to be that overflow, that that spillover effect in your world to make a difference. Your very presence in and among the brokenness of this world changes everything. It changes everything. You need to remember that, that you, your, your very existence does damage against darkness. And you are an agent of power and preservation. Righteousness of God's kingdom everywhere that you go. Amen. Just our presence, brothers and sisters. I repeat again, it is a blessing to the people around us. To the communities around us. And everybody in our vicinity... They ought to experience the overflow of God's goodness and His power. It's like we have a Holy Ghost splash zone. At least we ought to. My cup runneth over, David said. A picture of the Spirit. It's the oil that comes into our lives. The Spirit of God. It is meant to overflow and touch the lives of others. It was John F. Kennedy that is credited with popularizing the statement, A rising tide lifts all boats. And for him, this was uh, said in the context of economics. But the statement, it rings true for us today as well. I believe that the church, we are that rising tide in the earth. And our lives bring that redemptive lift that not only is intended for our benefit. Anybody grateful for the redemptive lift of the Spirit of God that changed you and your family and your family tree? But what I'm preaching tonight is that it's not just for us. That redemptive lift is intended to spill out onto others, onto those that are in our wake, so that their boat, if you will, may also experience that lift of that rising tide of righteousness in the earth. Oh, for the day that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's going to happen, brothers and sisters, by the church that's alive in the earth, by the Spirit that's at work through the church in the earth. And I long to see it. Somebody say amen. In Mark chapter 4, I want to take you to a few stories tonight. It records an account where a great storm of wind breaks out on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has sent his disciples out in a boat to cross to the other side of the lake. In obedience to his word, they're soon going to find out that it's going to land them right in the middle of this storm. Mark chapter 4, 36, so they took Jesus in the boat and they started out. Please notice the following phrases. They left the crowds behind, although other boats followed. Everyone say, other boats followed. you got to realize that as we live out our days obeying the voice of the Master, even encountering the storms of life at times, you have to remember there are those that are in our wake, that follow close behind, our family and friends, acquaintances even, co-workers and classmates, other boats followed. And those people that maybe you don't even recognize, you you may not even notice that they're there, they watch us and they look to see what will happen as we heed the call of Jesus, as we endure the situations and the storms that come our way. Of course, the wind, it does soon start to pick up. Waves start breaking in. The boat begins to fill with water, the scripture says. It was a very tense moment for the disciples, but they responded properly 
by going to Jesus, who is currently sleeping in the back of the boat. You know the story, perhaps. Thankfully, these disciples had enough sense to take their issue to the one who could calm the wind and the waves. And Jesus, he, he wakes up, he, he does exactly that, he rebukes the wind, and he says to the sea, peace be still, and there was a great calm. And that's a miracle we're celebrating. We thank God for every storm that is calmed and for every time that he sees us through the storms of life. And we can certainly see how this miracle had helped the disciples to have more faith and a greater fear of God. In fact, the scripture tells us that's exactly what happened in the, in the 12 disciples. They found that he was the peace speaker and it changed their lives. But I pause tonight to remind you of those other boats. <laughs> other boats followed. And so I understand that there's nothing in Scripture that is there by accident. And I think that Jesus would include that in his word so that we would pay attention. It, it makes sense to me that if they were following after the, the boat that Jesus was in, that the disciples were in, it would make sense that that same storm that came upon the disciples would have come upon those other boats also. And so it would also reason that the same miracle that the disciples experienced was also experienced by them, the other boats, which tells me that those who were in proximity of Jesus' followers, they were also blessed. They got to experience the same miracle. They got to walk in the overflow of God's goodness. Amen. When those disciples, when they decided to take their issue to Jesus, to, to, to cast their care upon him, for he cares for us. When, when Jesus got involved in their dilemma, not only were they about to receive that miracle for themselves, but it was about to bless everyone in their wake, literally. And so talk about a Holy Ghost splash zone. Now, it's all conjecture on my part, but I wonder how those other boats responded when that sea went as smooth as glass at the word of Jesus. I wonder tonight what, what those people in those boats, what, what happened in their heart and what they began to think. I have to imagine that they too were impacted by the miracle. They knew that they were following after people who had a relationship with Jesus. They knew that these men, that they had Jesus with them on that boat. And I have to believe that that same godly fear that gripped the disciples would have also gripped them. And like the disciples, I, I just believe that they would have said, what manner of man is this whose voice can calm the sea? And I believe that Jesus was glorified in them also. Again, speculation, conjecture. But other boats did follow. And they would have experienced the same miracle. And I think that it's much the same with all of us as people of God. That when we endure storms, and when we pray prayers, when we receive the blessings of God, those that follow us and those that observe us, they can't help but take notice. And the same godly fear and the faith that can rise up in us, it rises up in them as well. Thank God that there was praying people on the Sea of Galilee that night because their miracle became everybody's miracle. Their deliverance became everybody's deliverance. And their answered prayer, it became that redemptive lift that blessed everybody in their vicinity. They are the salt. They were the salt of the earth, if you will. And to me, that's exactly what it means to be the salt of the earth. I thank God that there's some praying people in this city, in the city of Fredericton, enduring the chaotic storms of a chaotic world. We have that same power to pray peace and God's power into the earth. It brings healing to the water just like it did for Elisha. It breaks the back of barrenness like it did for the prophet. And those around us, they benefit from the overflow of the miracles that we experience. I'll say it this way. Our miracles, they are Fredericton's miracles. And our revival that happens at CCC among the people of God, it becomes Fredericton's revival. And our answered prayers not only bless us and not only allow God's showers of blessing to rain down on us, but they are Fredericton's answered prayers and they are Fredericton's blessings that rain down all around. 
There's meant to be an overflow. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. It permeates the atmosphere. It changes things in the environment. That's what happened for these disciples. Other boats followed. Other boats were blessed. Acts 27 tells a story of yet another storm. This one, it involves the Apostle Paul, who at this point is a prisoner under Roman guard. And he is sailing bound to Rome, awaiting to stand trial before the Roman Emperor Nero. And so these Roman guards, there's a centurion there, the sailors, and, and a bunch of prisoners, they set sail for Rome. It's a long journey, and the, the first leg is pretty rough sailing, but they make it, the Bible says, to fair havens on the island of Crete. And it's at this point, recognizing that it's tumultuous and that it's only going to get worse, here Paul says, hey guys, you know, we should really set up camp here. We should batten down the hatches for winter, but the, the captain of the ship, he doesn't take Paul's advice, and he says, you know what, this is not a great place to, to winter, winterize the ship. We're going on against Paul's uh, recommendation. And uh, so Paul, he, he just, he's along for the ride. He can't help it. And the storms, they end up coming, you know. Paul was right. And for two whole weeks, 14 days, the Bible says, that ship is battered, cargo is thrown overboard, and all hope and everyone on board is lost. But Paul, he has a vision from an angel. If you know the story, that angel, he comes to Paul and he says, You're, you need to stand tri trial. You must stand trial before Caesar. It's going to happen. You will make it to Rome. And that angel told Paul, and Paul relayed it to the sailors and to the Roman guards. He said, we're going to lose the ship, but no one's going to lose their lives. So a little bit of, you know, a kindle of hope starts sparking again. Finally, it's been two weeks. The daylight, it breaks through the clouds. They run the ship aground on the island of Malta. They had no idea where they were, but everyone was just happy to be alive, like Paul said. And uh, the final view, few verses of Acts 27, it inspired these, these couple of lessons. And so I'll draw your attention to verse 42. The Bible says that the soldiers on that ship, they're run aground and they're not going anywhere in that boat. They, they plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But we know, and, and, and the soldiers knew, and the centurion knew, that, that Paul was among those prisoners. And the centurion had taken a liking to Paul, and he didn't really want Paul to die. The, these soldiers, they knew the policy that if a prisoner under their care were to escape somehow, then they would have to lay down their lives. Their lives would be forfeit in the place of the prisoner. And so they said, look, man, we, we got to kill these guys. Because if we get back to Rome and we don't have any prisoners in hand and, and they check the list, they're going to kill as many of us as are missing from that list. You know what I'm saying? So let's kill them all. But that centurion, verse 43, he wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land safely. As I read this passage, it struck me that all of those prisoners would have died but for the fact that Paul, a man of God, was there among them. The presence of Paul being among the prisoners that day made it so that the rest of them didn't have to face death. They lived to see another day. And just being in the vicinity of Paul, it blessed those prisoners. There was an overflow of God's goodness and grace that wasn't just toward Paul, the apostle, the man of God, but it spilled over into the lives of prisoners also. Never underestimate what your presence in the world does. The fact that you are a born-again, blood-washed child of God, filled with His Spirit, you are that preserving force for good for everybody around you. There are others that won't have to face death spiritually just because you lived in their vicinity. And your life became a change, change agent for them. I remember last, we remember last week how only ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah it would have caused God to spare multiplied thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands in those wicked cities. Just ten righteous and an entire region, a couple of cities, would be spared death. That's the principle. We are the salt of the earth. And others are spared. Others experience God's blessing. Just because we exist and we let the salt add the shaker. So here's a question for us to consider. I'll try to hasten. 
Why, well, I guess, did the prisoners swim away? That's the question. You know, they weren't killed, and, and uh, maybe they would take this opportunity to get away from their Roman guards. We looked at Acts chapter 28, verse 16. They finally make it to Rome after much time, and a lot has transpired. But the Bible says that the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. doesn't say the prisoners less five. doesn't say some of the prisoners. It simply says that that Roman centurion delivered the prisoners. And I would just, I would just have to guess that, that it was all the prisoners that were present on that ship. Which, which raises another question to me. Why would those prisoners not try to escape their captors and hide somewhere in Malta? Why wouldn't they run off to some crag in a cliff somewhere, hide in the brush, and just, just, just wait it out until those centurions, they, they find another way off of Malta, and they leave, and now they're free. You know, they're living on a small island, but whatever. They're free at least. Why not? Well, maybe it's because they recognized that the best place to be was in the presence of a man of God like Paul. Perhaps the way that they felt was, I, I would rather remain a prisoner under Roman guard and stay close to that guy. Because that guy had a visitation of an angel. And that guy had a word from God. And because of what that guy said, you know, he told us not to go. We should have listened to him. And, and then he spoke again, and, and our lives were spared as a result. And, and just because he was on the boat, on that list of prisoners, we didn't have to face death. I want to stay with Paul. I, I want to go wherever that guy's going because that guy has a hold of something that is real, and I want it. And many of us, we, we would also be familiar with another story involving Paul. And, and he was with another guy named Silas, and they were both in prison. And it's in Acts chapter 16. And here's a question. What do you do when you find yourself in a prison cell in the midst of a difficult situation? The best thing we, ought, we could do and what we ought to do is find our way into the presence of God. That's exactly what Paul and Silas did. At, at midnight, the Bible says, verse 25, they prayed. And they sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Everybody in their vicinity, everybody that was listening and watching, they heard the songs, and, and they heard the prayers of Paul and Silas. I'll tell you tonight, that's letting the salt out of the shaker. When you sing and you don't care who hears you, when you pray and you don't care who's listening, that, that, that's, that's letting it out of the shaker. It's like Daniel continuing to pray, even though it's now illegal in Persia, and he doesn't go any pray a quiet little whisper, now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayer, but with his windows open, he prays three times a day. Doesn't matter who listens, doesn't matter who hears me, doesn't matter if it costs me my life, I'm going to lift my voice. Paul and Silas did it, and the result is verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. I wonder if you're seeing it tonight. How Paul and Silas, their deliverance, it became everybody's deliverance. Paul and Silas, open door, it became everybody's open door, literally. Their praise and their answered prayer, it was that redemptive lift that blessed every other prisoner in the prison house that night at midnight. The salt of the earth. It changed the atmosphere. It permeated the environment and blessed everyone in their vicinity. Thank God there was a praiser in the prison that night. Thank God that there were praying people in the prison that night because not only were they loosed by their prayer and their praise, but everyone's bands were loosed and all the doors were open. Our city needs a church like that. Our city needs a church that knows what it is to walk in liberty and deliverance because those things are contagious. When we walk in freedom, when we walk in liberty and the blessing of an answered prayer and the overflow of praise that just rains it down from heaven, it's contagious. Others see it. Others are watching. And others are blessed. There's somebody around you, brothers and sisters. They're bound. And they need the results of your praise and your prayer more than you do. Because you can make it to heaven. You're, you're spirit-filled and, and you're saved by the power of God. You may be in, in a prison cell. But you can make it to heaven from a prison cell. 
There's somebody else around you. They're bound by the shackles of sin, and they need the overflow of what you can experience when you know what it is to pray. You know what it is to seek God. You know what it is to get in his house and get in your prayer closet and lift praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's somebody around you that needs that. They need you to walk in real freedom because that kind of liberty can't help but spilling over onto other people. Praise God. I wonder if we can just take a moment. I'm, I'm wrapping up, but I wonder if we could lift our hands for a moment and if we can just offer praise to the Lord because some of you have been, you've been waiting for God to open the door for you. It's found in your praise. It's found in your prayer when you just seek Him for Him, but it's not just for you. Somebody else is going to receive the overflow of the blessing that God rains down. So with that in mind, why don't you lift your voice with strength and with boldness and just offer your praise to the Lord. Hallelujah. I know it's difficult to endure the storms of life. I know sometimes it seems like Jesus doesn't even care asleep in the back of the boat. But go ahead and wake him up. Go ahead and stir the master and, and seek him in prayer. Because somebody else is going to be blessed. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Yes, yes, yes. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Why don't we clap our hands and just lift one more shout to the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, somebody be a praiser in the prison. Somebody go ahead and lift your voice even from a prison cell. Yes, yes. Here's something interesting from the story. The Bible says in verse 27 that the keeper of the prison, he awoke at a sleep. And he saw that the prison doors were open and he drew out his sword and he would have killed himself. Because he supposed that the prisoners had fled. And here again we see that Roman law. If a prisoner escapes on your watch, you're a dead man. And this guy sees all the open doors and he assumes the worst. He assumes the obvious, really. Convicted felons. With the doors open, their chains gone. And he figures, well, everyone must have left. And rather than face an excruciating Roman execution, I might as well end it all on my own. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Again, I ask, why did the prisoners not run away, taking advantage of their newfound freedom? Perhaps, maybe, just maybe, again, a little bit of conjecture tonight, but, but perhaps they recognized that the best place to be was in the presence of a man of God like Paul and a man of God like Silas, people that knew what it was to get a hold of heaven and bring it down to earth. I want to be around people like that. I'd rather remain under Roman guard, under lock and key if that's what it needs to be, and stay close to somebody who has something that is real. I want what those guys have a hold of. I'm not running away out into the night and returning to my old life, but I'm going to stay real near them, real close to them. You have more power and more influence than you recognize, child of God. You are the salt of the earth. Your, your very presence, it changes the atmosphere around you. Your life literally is that rising tide that lifts all boats. There's that overflow, that Holy Ghost splash zone that blesses everybody in your vicinity. Thank you, Jesus. I feel his presence here tonight. Come on, somebody needs to recognize it tonight. There's a power in you that changes everything. You are the salt that heals the water. You're the salt that breaks the barrenness. Hallelujah. One more time, just lift your voice for a second. There's an undercurrent of the Spirit of God here tonight. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God, we're thankful that you, for the times that you bless us. We're thankful for all the ways you have. But God, it's, it's about more than just us. God, it's about a city that needs you. It's about our family and our friends, our classmates and our coworkers. God, let there be that overflow. Let there be that splash zone. Let, let somebody else be blessed because we know what it is to walk with you. 
Hallelujah, hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. I want to leave you tonight with one more story from Scripture. We're going to gather around this front. We're going to pray in a few moments. There was a demon-possessed man. You, you probably are familiar with this story. He was from the Gadarenes, and he lived among the tombs. Matthew chapter 8 tells that story along with Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. He had been this way a long time, wandering naked among the tombs, driven to solitary places by that demon. His condition, it was so severe and the devil so powerful that no one could pass that way anymore. He was literally a human roadblock. That road was, was completely blocked off to anybody in that region. They had tried before to bind him both hand and foot, but nothing could subdue the demoniac. Not even chains were strong enough to hold him. He would break them. And so night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. But one day, Jesus came to the shores of the Gadarenes. He lands there with his disciples, and the first person they encounter is this demoniac. He sees Jesus from a distance. He runs to his feet. He bows on his knees, and the Bible says, that even this demon-possessed man, all he could do was worship him. The spirit in this man knew that this was God in flesh. And in the, in the presence of the Almighty, the only response is to bow. And this spirit it began to ask Jesus, Hey, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? Have you come to do something here that we don't want to happen? And Jesus, he asks for the name of the unclean spirit. And it replies, My name is Legion, for we are many. Nearby there was a herd of about 2,000 pigs, and the devils, they begged Jesus, please don't cast us into the deep. Other translations, it says, don't cast us into the abyss. The same word is used in Revelation as it's rendered as the bottomless pit. And so literally they were saying, Jesus, don't send us to the bottomless pit, which was a holding place. It's a holding place for fallen angels. But instead, Jesus, allow us to enter those pigs. And Jesus obliged, cast the demons out of the man into the pigs, which promptly ran off a cliff and drowned. We don't know the exact number of demons. Legion, it could mean multiplied thousands. On average, in, 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 a Roman, uh, in, the, in the Roman army, a, a legion would have been about 5,000. But some speculate it was probably around 2,000 that afflicted that man, the same number as pigs <laughs> that ran off the cliff. But in one moment, despite the fact that there was perhaps thousands of demons possessing this man, Jesus set him free. Just one encounter with Jesus changed everything. Now the ruckus of the drowning pigs, it draws the attention of the nearby city, but their response is strange. They see the demoniac now clothed in his right mind. The Bible says that they are afraid. Rather than receptive, they fear Jesus. Not in a good kind of way, but they push him away, literally begging him to leave their shores and leave them alone, and that he does. He gets in his boat, and he's about to leave, but the Bible says, Mark 5, 18, that as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him, please let me go with you, Jesus. Let me be one of your disciples. I'd love that. But Jesus did not let him go. But he said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man, he did it. Verse 20, he went away. And he began to tell in the Decapolis, meaning the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. That's a powerful scripture. Music, you can join me. I'm finishing. Now, Jesus asking the demoniac to not accompany him, accompany him that's one thing, but to ask him to, not, to go in and to tell everybody what he had done, that's, that's something that's different because usually Jesus asked people to keep quiet about the miracles he performed. And that probably was because usually his miracles were done among Jewish people, and he did not want to draw undue attention too early to himself among the Jewish leaders. But this was the Gadarenes. This was a Gentile region. 
And Jesus was not seemingly concerned about the extra publicity. So go ahead. Go back home and tell everybody you can. They all part ways. Jesus and his disciples, they leave the Gadarenes. And then one delivered man. He goes in among these ten towns in the region of the Gadarenes, armed with nothing more than a testimony of God's healing power. I wonder tonight the impact that one changed man can have on a region like that. Gentile region, not familiar with the ways of God at all. It was just a brief visit from Jesus. Only one man received that miracle, but that one encounter would not only change that one life, but that one encounter would eventually change many lives. I want us to know that even only one person that is transformed by the power of God, renewed by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, can change a region. I need to say it again. Just one person, transformed by the power of God, renewed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, can change a region. It's that power of redemptive lift. Not only did this one man feel the effects of God's blessing, but those in the vicinity of this life also felt the effects. The demon-possessed man was not only the only one that was delivered and changed, but an entire region experienced the ripple effect of just one transformed life. How do we know this? Well, we know because the next time that Jesus visits these shores, he's not greeted by a single demoniac this time, now delivered, of course. Nor is he driven away by the same angry mob. Somewhere around a year later, it's another Galilee crossing. There's another storm, and this time is when Jesus would walk on the water. But when they had crossed over, Mark 6.53, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. It's the same place. It's the Gadarenes. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. And I wonder what they did. Did they grab their torches and pitchforks and come to Jesus and say, Get out of here. We told you last time we don't want you here. That's not what they did. They ran throughout the whole region and they carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces and they begged Jesus, Just let us touch the very edge of your cloak. And all who touched it were healed. So you can see, it's, it's been perhaps a year. We don't really know exactly. The tone has dramatically and drastically changed in the Gadarenes. Rather than drive Jesus away, they crowd around and they're begging him for healing. And everywhere he went in the region, everywhere, everyone seemed receptive to his ministry. And it kind of all culminates, you know, the Bible also records a time when Jesus fed the 4,000 and this was the number of men, the Bible says. So we could, you know, we could guess if you included women and children, up around 16,000 perhaps. You can read about this account, the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 8. We're familiar with Jesus feeding the 5,000. But did you know that there's another account where Jesus feeds a different group of 4,000 people? In the feeding of the 5,000, there's five loaves and two fish that are found, and everybody's fed, and 12 baskets of fragments are gathered on the other side. But in the feeding of the 4,000, seven loaves and a few small fish are found. Everyone is fed, and then seven baskets of leftovers are collected. Now, I don't know what you think when you, you know, maybe you've read these two accounts and you thought it was just the same thing, and you know how sometimes in the Bible there can be small differences in the text between the various Gospels. kind of feels that way. Maybe this is just the same account, which is a slightly different number. But it's not. It's, very, it's a totally different account. And it's interesting to me that these two Gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, they would take the time and they would spend their ink documenting two very similar miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. It seems almost redundant. It seems repetitious. But there is one primary difference between these two miracles besides the numbers. Location, location, location. Jesus fed 5,000 near Bethsaida. It's close to the Sea of Galilee. And the people gathered at Bethsaida that day 
would have been predominantly Jewish. But the feeding of the 4,000, it happened somewhere else. And I wonder if you'd be able to guess where it was. See, in contrast, the feeding of the 4,000, it didn't take place among Jewish people. In Judea, in Galilee, it didn't take place there, but it took place in the region of the Gadarenes, in and around the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. Hellenistic influence, Greek in nature. That's where Jesus did that miracle. I wonder if you see it today. Just one man did that. Just one man, changed by the power of God, did that. Just one demon-possessed man, now delivered, was able to go back home and tell everybody what Jesus had done for him. And he completely transformed a region. He has been the salt of the earth. And his testimony, it has caused everyone around him to thirst for the things of God to thirst for the power that is resident in Jesus Christ to the point where they came out of where they were, they hear Jesus is back and and they come begging Him for miracles, begging Him for healing. And they gathered literally by the thousands, perhaps 15,000, 16,000, just to hear Him speak. We go from one man with a testimony to a year later, multiplied thousands. And if one man could do it 2,000 years ago with not much pedigree, with nothing more than a testimony, and without being filled with God's Spirit, I would add, because this is pre-Pentecost. I wonder what could this group in this church in the city of Fredericton accomplish? I wonder today what influence we might have in and around our city that, yes, has its problems, but we've got the Spirit of God within us, and greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. I wonder if you clap your hands for a moment if you believe what I'm preaching tonight. Come on, if one man could do it then, I believe a church can do it today. We are the change agent in our world. But I'll close tonight like I closed last week as you stand. Thank you for your attention. I feel the presence of the Lord. In fact, I wonder as I conclude here tonight, I wonder if you would join me at this altar. We're going to close and dismiss by way of the altar tonight. I feel like the Lord wants to pray and ju- wants us to pray and just let this be sealed in our spirit. The truth of the matter is this. Salt left in its shaker does nothing to impact its surroundings. A man with a testimony is powerful, but if he doesn't go and spread it, if he doesn't go and shake the salt everywhere he goes, it does nothing. So in every conversation, in every interaction, in every day that we live in this world, season it all with salt. Season it all with salt. And even just small actions, small acts of good done to glorify God, it will change the environment around you. When you lift your voice, do you realize that your voice is sanctified? Your voice has the Spirit of God behind it. And as you speak, it's, it's as if God is speaking through you to impact your world. Your voice carries a lot more weight than you believe. It carries a lot more weight than, than, than those that are around you that, that are not touched by the power of God. Never forget it. You're the salt of the earth. And you have outsized influence to change the spiritual atmosphere. And so I'll close with what Jesus said to that man from Gadarene. Go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And if you'll do that, you can change a region just like He changed a region. And if you believe it, I I wonder if you'd just lift your hands with me and join me closing this service in prayer, in faith, believing what the Word of the Lord has declared tonight. We are a voice for righteousness. We are a force for good. We are salt in our city. We are the salt of the earth. In the name of Jesus.
I just feel quickened in my spirit. Those apostles in the first century, their prayer request, every time that they would gather, their prayer was for boldness, that they would be bold to lift their voice in a godless world. I wonder if you would join me tonight and just lift your voice and ask that the Lord would baptize us with that spirit of boldness that would quicken us in every interaction, in every moment, God, everywhere we go and whoever we encounter. Lord, help us to let the salt out of the shaker. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Oh, God, touch us now. Baptize us now with boldness. God, let us not cower. Let us not hide the light of the gospel under a bushel. But let us be salt. Let us be light. Let us be bold.